Welcome to the Grace Harbor Church Sermon Podcast. Grace Harbor Church is located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information, visit our website at ghokc.com. So, if you would, uh, stand with me uh, and Jim. And Jim's going to read our passage for for us this morning. Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. All right, listen for the word of God. Then the disciples of Jesus came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the terror is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Amen. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that it is everlasting. It stands much, much longer and will stand forever um, than anything um, we have here in front of us that we rely on. So we thank you for it, and we put our full trust in it because we know it is from you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, church, be seated. Thank you so much for standing and your patience through that. Uh, Very, very grateful just to be uh, preaching the word of God um, and what it says to us this morning. Um, hey, raise your hand real quick with me um, if you watch the news, if, if you're a news watcher on TV, social media, news outlets, whatever, if you're a news watcher. Okay, just a few of y'all. No, there's not a lot of people in here reading the news. Okay, uh, maybe you're just timid about raising your hand. Um, I'm not a big news watcher, um, but I know there's a lot going on in the world right now. Um, not, that there's, not that there really isn't ever a lot going on in the world, right? Um, but sometimes our attention's more drawn to things happening around us. Um, there's, there's earthquakes, um, big, big earthquakes causing a lot of tragedy. Um, there's war and rumors of war right now, right? Um, there's a lot of things going on that um, could, could cause a lot of anxiety among us um, and, and might, for good reasons, cause some anxiety among us. Um, there's, there's death. Um, there's sickness. This isn't just from news media, by the way. I'm, I'm thinking more close to home right here. I, I know of several um, that I know, even in the church, who are experiencing sickness um, and the unknown. Um, we have questions about why, why God allows sickness to happen, why God allows death to happen, um, why God allows needs to go unmet for a little bit. These are questions that I think we all have at some point, right? Shake your head if you're with me, yeah? There's a lot of things happening. There's a lot of, thing go- a lot of things going on that are in our hearts and our minds that are constantly with us. Um, Jordan Moore sent a message to our, to our men's group me last night and said, I just, I pray Jesus meets us at the door this morning. Um, wherever we're at, Jesus meets us at the door. And he doesn't mean just when we come into the building, but he means when we come in to worship him. And he means it as well when we, when we worship him outside of here with everything going on. So it's my prayer, and it's my hope this morning that through God's word and through what he teaches us in it, that we would be able to see past or in and through everything happening among us happening in the world, we would be able to see that Jesus, that Jesus is far better than the answer to every problem that we have. 
He's the answer to every anxiety that we have, every fear that we have, every need that we have. So that's my goal this morning is to help communicate that. And I'm so thankful that God's word does not return void when we read it and when we preach it. Amen? Amen. So let's get in the word. All right, Matthew chapter 9. We are still in the book of Matthew. Last week, Jordan preached to us. Um, from, the, from the previous passage of, of Jesus calling Matthew. And so let's just set up where we're at again real quick. Let's, let's do a little catch up right here. Jesus is reclining in, in this past passage, reclining at a table with who? Sinners, tax collectors. And I think what we're actually walking into in verses 14 through 17 is a continuation of what just happened in the previous section of, of, uh, of Matthew right here. Matthew's just continuing his narrative of what's going on around them. And when Jordan taught us last week, he taught us last week um, from this passage, how God in the flesh came down to be with us. He taught us that he came with a purpose to save sinners and how he desires what Hosea spoke of and not desiring, not desiring sacrifice, but mercy. Do you remember that last week? Desiring, sacri- desiring mercy, he desires mercy and not sacrifice. That's where we're at. So, so from the way this text reads, I think we're walking into the same place. I think we're actually in the same house, maybe. Maybe Matthew's house still, that we're sitting around. Jesus is sitting around with these sinners. He's sitting around with tax collectors. Pharisees are nearby. They just asked a question about why are you eating with these people? Jesus, disciples, why, why does your teacher eat with these people? And Jesus answers them. So we've got all these people sitting around the table, and, and now we see that John's disciples are actually there too. And so John's disciples come up and and, uh, and they may be sitting around the table. They may just be standing nearby. We don't really know. Um, but, but there's a question that's brought up by them. And that's where, that's where we start today, a question. A question right here. You ready? So here's the question. Here's where we get into the text. While all these people are around Jesus, here's a question that's posed. Verse 14, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast? Why do we and the Pharisees fast, Jesus, but your disciples don't fast? Why do we fast, but they don't fast? So before, uh, before we jump into any conclusions right here, before we're like hasty to start judging, which, you know, whenever I read a text like this, sometimes my first thoughts go to like, man, I wanna accuse the disciples of John because like, well, how dare they ask Jesus this question? They know who Jesus is. Like John told them who Jesus was. Why are they asking Jesus these kind of questions? Why aren't they just following him and doing what he's saying to do? Why aren't they following the example of his disciples? Uh, my, my heart and mind, whenever I read a text like this, because I know the whole of scripture, I know Jesus, sometimes my heart and mind kind of jump to these conclusions. I don't know about you. Maybe you're the same way. Maybe, you, maybe you're not. Maybe you're very gracious in that. Uh, but before we, before we get into these accusations or maybe assumptions that their question is, is disrespectful or accusing Jesus or his disciples in any way. Uh, can we just take a step back for a moment um, and take a look at this question? Can we consider for a moment kind of the context of what's happening here? And what I mean by that, not just the, the context of what's happening here um, in the scripture, but maybe a cultural context, maybe a, a historical context of what's actually happening, not right here, not just a literary one, but a cultural, a traditional a religion context of what's happening here. Uh, this practice of fasting, um, we, Kevin preached on fasting a few months ago, and I know that's kind of a touchy subject with somebody because we don't really like to fast, but here's the question. Here's another question about fasting. It's addressed again in the book of Matthew. The practice of, of fasting at this time, um, in this time and place for these people was, was something seen as good, 
and holy, okay? Fasting was a good and a holy thing. It was seen as a spiritual practice that God's people had been practicing long before this time, something they'd been doing for generations. It was, it was practiced by both the religious elite and those trying to live up to religious expectations. Um, it was a good thing. It was something they were trying to live up to. Fasting was something so elevated among religious leaders um, that from what I've seen in commentators and, and historical readings, that this was something that they actually um, took. It wasn't actually a law that they were supposed to do this, but the religious leaders of that time were telling people, you need to fast at least two times a week. We fast two times a week. You should fast at least two times a week, people of God. This is what they were hearing. This is what they were being told. It was a very common thing for them to hear and to do, okay? This is where fasting's at here. Actually, in, in Mark's account, um, you'll see he kind of says that, that John's disciples and the Pharisees were actually fasting right here at this time while Jesus is around the table with his disciples, um, while tax collectors and sinners are reclining at the table with him eating and drinking. These people walk up and they say, we're, we're fasting. They're the ones fasting right now. And don't we know that when Jesus actually spoke about fasting in Matthew, um, he actually, when, remember when Kevin preached, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily that you should fast, but he kind of expects that people would fast. When you fast, this is how you should do it. And we know that Jesus himself fasted, right? In the early parts of, of the gospel, in the gospel of Matthew and others, when Jesus retreated into the wilderness, fasted for 40 days. So it's not necessarily that fasting is not accepted by Jesus. It's not necessarily that fasting is wrong. It's actually a good and a holy thing. But for some reason, Jesus' disciples are not doing it. And it poses a question, why? Why? While it's not commanded, Jesus implies that we should be, but, but why? The point I'm trying to get to here is this. Considering what is happening around them, considering when it's happening and who it's happening to, this question and the circumstances happening with fasting, Whatever's, whatever's going on here, this actually sounds to me like a legit question. Does it to you? Not necessarily accusing Jesus' disciples, but, but to me, this almost sounds more like, hey, we just really wanna know. What's, what's going on here? This is out of the ordinary, Jesus. What's going on? I think it's a valid and good question for John's disciples to be asking this. The Pharisees fast. We fast. Why don't you and your disciples do the same? And we don't necessarily know their motives for asking, right? The question may be good. It may be accusatory. We don't really know, but it seems like a good question, but we don't really know their motivations behind asking. I read, I read one commentator. Um, I really like this. I don't know if it's true. He doesn't know if it's true, but he seems to think that maybe the, the Pharisees were the ones motivating John's disciples to do this. You know, they're the ones in the past two passages, the, the religious leaders the scribes and the Pharisees, they're either accusing Jesus in their mind or they're going to Jesus' disciples and accusing him there. And so maybe the Pharisees are the ones going to John's disciples. Hey, they're not fasting. That, something's wrong here. Go ask them about that. Maybe they're listening to that. We don't know. Maybe that's their motive. Maybe John's disciples are a little confused about what's going on and who's teaching to follow and believe. Do you know where their teacher is right now, where John is? He's in prison. He's locked up for what he's teaching. So maybe they're coming to him saying, hey, Jesus, we don't know what's going on. Our teacher's in prison for, for teaching, and you're teaching this over here. Like, what do we do? What's going on? Why are you doing this? 
Maybe, just maybe, they were wanting to learn from him. Maybe they just wanted an answer from Jesus. Maybe they just wanted to sit at his feet and know what he was teaching. Maybe. Whatever the reason, they noticed something was different, right? Something different is happening here. There's a shift happening that's not normal. It doesn't match up to what we were taught. It doesn't match up to what we've been told to do by our religious leaders. Something is different, and we want to know why. So here's the question. Why, Jesus? Let's think about that for a second, asking a question. Is it necessarily wrong? Let me ask you this. Is it necessarily wrong that John's disciples were asking? Is it necessarily wrong that we ask questions about what Jesus teaches or what the Bible teaches? Do you think that's wrong? Is it wrong to ask why he teaches his disciples to do certain things or for, for that matter, what he teaches us to do and instructs us to do? Because, because oftentimes, if you notice this, Jesus' teaching, Jesus' instructions often don't match up with what the world is trying to teach. Jesus' teachings don't often match up with what high thinkers are teaching, elite thinkers or moral leaders They don't often match up to that. Can I tell you this? Jesus' teaching don't often match up with what my heart wants, what my flesh desires. So is it bad to ask why? If it's different than everything else, Jesus, why should we follow this? Why should we follow you? No, it's not wrong to ask these questions. Can I just settle your minds right now? It's not wrong. It's not wrong to ask why. That's the simple answer. Questions are not bad, and it's not wrong to ask why. Questions can actually help give us a better understanding for what we do and why we believe what we believe. Questions are not bad. It's not bad. Now, sometimes Jesus' answer is just trust me. I know what's good. I know what's best. I know what's glorifying to God, and I know what's best for you. Sometimes his answer is just trust me. I know what I'm doing. And other times, he gives us straight-up answers, right? Sometimes his word explicitly tells us what's going on. And actually, I think that's what he's doing right here. When John's disciples are asking this question, a legit question, maybe a good question, just asking, Jesus actually gives them an answer. So let's get into that, right? The beautiful and gracious thing that happens here is Jesus doesn't rebuke them for asking. He doesn't walk off and ignore them but he answers them with the truth that they both desire and need. You following me here? You with me? All right, here's the answer. We're gonna get into the answer. What does he say to them? Verses, let's let's go back to verse 14 and we'll go into 15. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the, bridegroom, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Then they will fast. It's a good example that Jesus gives. Jesus is the master storyteller, right? Master of parables. Love this parable here that he gives. Who's ever been to a wedding before? Yeah? Most people in America have been to a wedding, right? 
Most people that we know have been to a wedding. I've been to several weddings. I've been to my own wedding even, you know? Um, ironically, I've been to my own wedding. Weddings are, are celebrations, right? We get to witness something happening, but when I, can I tell you, especially in this time, the focus of a wedding was, was the celebration of the bride and groom, the celebration of what's happening here. These people like to party at weddings. You know, I grew up in a Baptist home, Baptist weddings, where we go and we have punch and cake, and sometimes we just go home after that. The, what we experience may not be exactly what is happening here when Jesus talks about being with the bridegroom. Why should, it, why should, why should the wedding guests mourn while the bridegroom is here? This is a time for celebration. If you're a guest at a wedding, you don't go around gloomy and sad. What do you do? What do you do at a wedding? Tell me. You dance. Some people dance. I don't dance. You eat. You drink. You're married. You visit with the bride and groom. Hey, can I tell you, we were talking last night with my parents. They were over at, at my house. And we started talking about our wedding because we're coming up in our 10th tenth, tenth year of being married. And, and we're, I was thinking, like, at our reception, at our, at our parties, like, I barely remember even seeing Courtney there. Um, and it's not that she ran off or I ran off, but we were most of the time back to back because people were wanting to meet with us and celebrate with us and talk with us and be merry with us and be joyful. That's what weddings are all about. Let's rejoice what's happening here. Let's celebrate. It's not a time to mourn. It's not a time to be sad. It's not a time to not eat. Let's feast together and be glad about what's happening here. That's what, that's what Jesus is saying. Hey, how can, how can a wedding guest mourn while they're with the bridegroom? doesn't make sense. Jesus, Jesus actually goes on and he talks about um, um, some, some more examples like, like garments. Hey, if there's a hole in, a, in, a, in an old garment, do you, do you take a, a new patch and, and you put it on the, the old garment? Well, people at this time, and if you're a seamstress or anything like that, you would know that that's kind of silly, right? Um, if my son wasn't in the room, I'd say S-T-U-P-I-D. Um, we don't say that in our house. Um, so, but it's, it's just silly, right? You don't, you don't put a piece of, of new cloth in an old garment. Whenever that garment starts to shrink, whenever that patch starts to shrink, it just tears a bigger hole. It doesn't, it doesn't work together. This just doesn't make sense that you put those things together, right? Hey, he also talks about wine and wineskins. He talks about putting new wine and wineskins. And Jesus says, you don't put new wine in, in old wineskins. It just, it, it doesn't work because, I don't know if you know this, I didn't know a whole lot about this, but when you put new wine into old wineskins, something happens. When you put wine into any wineskin, this is what it's supposed to do. It's, it's for the fermentation process of wine. It's for the fermenting of the wine, and something happens. I don't know what it is. It's something like myloacetic acid something. Something happens with wine when it's fermenting that it releases gas and it expands. It expands. So Jesus is saying this, and these people would have known exactly what he was talking about. If you take new wine and you put it in an old wineskin, an old dried up wineskin that's kind of formed to where it's gonna be, there's no room for it to grow, there's no room for it to move. If you put new wine into an old wineskin, when that wine starts to, starts to expand, what's gonna happen? And people around would start to be like, well, it's gonna bust, you know? This would have been obvious to them. It's gonna burst. The wine's gonna fall out on the ground. The wineskin's gonna be ruined. What a waste, right? 
What a waste of that. That just wouldn't make sense to do that. People are like, yeah, I, my cousin did that last week. That was a really bad mistake. You know, what? This would have made total sense to them. The two just don't go together. They are incompatible with one another. This doesn't make sense. It's nonsense. Jesus says it's, it's this. It's like, a, it's like a wedding guest mourning at a wedding. It's like putting a patch on a, a new patch on an old piece of garment. It's like putting new wine and old wineskins. The two just don't go together. This is his answer to them. He's trying to make it clear and clear. The two things are just not compatible. So, while we don't see a verbal response here from Jesus' audience, there would have been an obvious and resounding, of course not. Of course not. Those things don't go together. And this is Jesus' reasoning. This is Jesus' answer. In this parable, he is telling them, my disciples do not fast because they are with the bridegroom. They are with the bridegroom, and he is with them. It's not a time to fast. This is a time to celebrate. This is a time to celebrate. We don't fast. We're not gloomy. It's not the, time, it's not the right time for this. All right. So can we take it a, just a little bit further? Can we just take a layer off and, and see if we can go a little bit further into this? Are you with me? Still with me? If you're with me, say I'm with you. Okay. Kind of. Okay, I believe you, you're with me, here we go. Let's take a moment, we'll peel back another layer, try to go a little bit further, understand what's happening right here in the text. So for centuries leading up to this point, the people of God practiced fasting, right? We know that, we covered that already. They practiced fasting for a long, long time, and they practiced it for, for multiple reasons. Kevin taught us that you know, the, really the only time it was ever commanded was during the Day of Atonement, but people during the Old Testament leading up to this time did practice this. They practiced it in a way of, of uh, sometimes asking for forgiveness. They asked uh, and fasted and prayed when there was impending danger, when there was times of war or possible war, they fasted. When they were grieving before God because of sickness or, or death, they fasted. And in response to just how terrible the state of things seemed to be, they fasted. Do you remember from Matthew 6? I keep referencing Kevin. I had listened to Kevin's message this past, this past week, and it, just, it was so good. You can go back and listen to it on the website. He taught us that fasting can be a spiritual practice for us, that it helps form us. It doesn't save us, but the pra- practice of fasting can help form us. So here's, here's what I think. Listen, I think. Here's what I think the spiritual practice of fasting has been like for the people of God centuries. If you take these examples in scripture, I think fasting is most always in some way a desire and longing for the presence of God. I think fasting is is a desire and longing for the presence of God. Whether for God to forgive them and, and be made righteous before him, they desired his presence in fasting whether it was to be on, on their side to win a battle in wars, God, God, be present with us. And their desire for understanding why hardships, why destruction, why death comes. We fast because we desire the presence of God to, to give us answers here. 
or even in their grieving and questioning why. They desired God's presence. Be with us, God. It was a desire for God to draw near and be present with them. And here in this passage, you have, you have three groups of people, okay? You have three groups of people who, were, who, who, who have been given examples of in fasting who really believed that God would draw near and be present with them. In fact, they were looking for a coming king. They were looking for a coming Messiah, God with them, as Isaiah spoke of. So you got the Pharisees, right? You got the Pharisees who are there, may have been agging on the question, we don't know, but they're there. They're fasting. You got the Pharisees who knew all of Scripture, They knew what the prophet Isaiah said, right? They knew it. They knew what the prophet Isaiah said. There is a king coming, coming to reign someday, coming to make things new again. They fasted because of this. Their their problem was, here's their problem. Their problem was that the spiritual practice of fasting, which should should have been in, in the anticipation of a coming Messiah and longing for the presence of God, was actually deflected by their legalism. They're looking for a coming Messiah, but over time, this, this act of legalism, being made righteous before others and being made righteous in my own eyes has kind of deflected that back right, up, right back at them. Their practice, in, instead of longing for the presence of God, was more than a longing for their own righteousness. That was their problem here, was deflected by that. The practice of fasting for the presence of God actually turned them away from God and blinded them to God right in front of them. I think these were probably the ones he was referring to um, in the Sermon on the Mount when uh, he said, my son was waving at me, I'm waving back at him. Um, I I think the Pharisees were the ones that Jesus was referring to when he says these hypocrites who, who, who show themselves fasting, who make themselves look gloomy so that others could see their own righteousness. I think this is probably who he's talking about, maybe some others. They did it so people would see highly of them for their sacrifice before God. Their desire and motivation may have been right in the beginning, but now it's only for their self-righteousness. Wrong desire led to their self-righteousness here. So you got the the Pharisees. Then you have John's disciples. John's disciples, you were coming up and asking this question, who also knew that the Messiah was coming, right? They were following a guy who was preaching this. This was John's message. Hey, prepare the way of the Lord. He's coming. He will be magnificent. He'll make, his, he'll, he'll make us new again. The Messiah is coming, and he's coming soon. Prepare the way of the Lord. So in their fasting, I, I, I think that they were actually looking and believed that the Messiah was coming soon. They may have, they may have heard John say that Jesus is the Messiah even. You know, John looked at Jesus and said, hey, he's, he's, this is the one right here. I'm, I'm, and Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit comes. They may have heard that. They may have heard John teach that. John's disciples fasted for this reason. But, but even John had questions about this. As we'll see in a, in a couple chapters later, you know, G, John sends his messengers to Jesus and, he's, and he essentially says, are, are you the one who is to come? Are you the one who is to come or, or should we look for another? So even John had questions about this. John, who was teaching and knew Jesus, his cousin was the Messiah, and he still had questions about this. John's disciples fasted, most likely with the right desires 
Pharisees' wrong desires. John's disciples probably had the right desires for the presence of God to draw near, but they lacked the understanding of who Jesus actually was. Right desire, lack of understanding in who Jesus actually is. So you got these two. Then you got Jesus' disciples, this third group of people. While the Pharisees are fasting for self-righteousness and while the disciples of John are fasting for the presence of the coming Messiah, what are Jesus' disciples doing? They're feasting. We're not fasting, we're feasting. It's not that they aren't fasting because they don't long for the presence of God. They are feasting in the presence of God in the flesh, of God with them. They are celebrating with the bridegroom right there with them. Do you see the difference in these three? Do you see it? One had a wrong desire. Another had the right desire but the wrong understanding. And the third had a right desire and their understanding came in their faith of who Jesus said he was. Jesus, we, we, we long for God, but we see you right here. We're basking in the presence of God. We're not longing for it. We're living in the presence of God. They were there with the Messiah. So it made sense to Jesus and for them not to fast, right? It made sense for them not to fast. It was like Jesus was saying to these fasting here, you do these things in devotion and devotion to and your desire for God's presence, and at times that's, that's good and right. But look at me. <laughs> look at me, Jesus is saying. I feel like he said, just look at me. I'm right here. I'm here with you. I have come to you. Presence of God is here. What you've longed for is here. Bask in it. Celebrate with me. I am here. Look at me. I'm him. Jesus' disciples, they were able to see this. They were able to see and believe because their eyes weren't on something coming. Their eyes weren't on themselves or others, but they were looking to Jesus to be filled by him. They were looking straight at Jesus, God and the flesh. Church, can I, can I just can I say this? This instruction that Jesus is giving to see him, to know him as God, is something we need instruction for today, and here's why. It can be so, I believe this, I believe it can be so very easy for us to do things that we are supposed to do, maybe even with the right desire, but we can't become so blinded by our own spiritual practices for God's presence that we completely miss the presence of God. Does that make sense? We can do all the right things. We can say all the right things. We can show up on a Sunday morning. We can show up to Bible studies. We can show up to community group. We can serve one another and completely miss Jesus here. Jesus has to be our center of this and everything that we do in our outreach, in our community, in our fasting, in our feasting. He is the center of it all. We have to look to Jesus. If we miss this, we're, we're no better than the Pharisees. We're no better than those wandering. We know Jesus, so we look to him. So where does that leave us right now? We know that Jesus' disciples were doing right by not fasting because they had him right in front of them, right? 
We know this. Jesus said this is good. This is what they're supposed to be doing. But we also have examples in the New Testament where Jesus' Jesus's disciples are, are again fasting. Jesus' followers, those who are, are listening to his teachings, those who are listening to the teachings of Jesus are fasting again. Some fasted when they desired the presence of God to be with them in, in leading the church and, and sending out others to proclaim the gospel and, and in times of, of great dependence on him. People were fasting. So should we still practice fasting today is our question that I think it comes to my mind, and, and, and I think the answer is yes. I think we should be fasting at certain times. But here's the catch. We fast, but not with the exact same motivation as they did before Christ came. Something's different. You remember how John's disciples were coming up and saying something's different here? We need to ask you a question. Something different has happened to us. Something different now is here with us. There's a shift. So we don't practice old ways like they did before with this mourning and fasting. As believers, we should not fast or for that matter do anything else in a desire in a desire for anything else but Christ. Our faith and our practice is not in and to a God who desires our sacrifice for righteousness. It is not in a God who might come to save us someday, who might come to save us someday. Our faith and practice, church, what we do, what, what we say, what we believe, is in and to a God who did come in the flesh and died for us. Our faith and practice is in this. It is Jesus who is our righteousness. It is Jesus who is our ruling and reigning king. It is Jesus who, because he is overwhelmingly faithful, will come again. But until he does, here's where we are. We watch and wait for a reigning king. Amen? We watch and wait for a reigning king. We watch for him while this, while this world that we still exist in has the reality of war. Okay? We wait as a people who still experience sickness. We still experience death and grief, still asking questions. Why? Why is this happening? Still trying to understand why God allows certain things to happen to us and to others. So things like earthquakes, things like war, things like murder, things like loss that can sometimes even cause doubt and fear in our hearts and minds. God isn't saying don't, don't mourn. It's not saying don't fast, but in your fasting, we have hope. In your mourning, we have hope. Not in something that might come, but someone who has come and someone who will come again for us, who is coming to make all things new, even us. Amen? This is how we respond, church. This is how we practice spiritual mourning, spiritual fasting, not as those who have no hope, but as those who do have hope. We do these things like the people of God always have, but we do not practice these things, respond in this way and exist in these hardships and questions as those who have no hope. The questions, which are good, the practice, which is good, the response, which we may have, should never take our eyes off Jesus. Here's what they should do. They should point our eyes to Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith. Fasting without looking to Jesus, listen to this, fasting without looking to Jesus for fulfillment will only leave us empty and wandering. 
We desire understanding, comfort, and the nearness of God, but we do it in actual full confidence that we have God with us and in full confidence that he will make all things new. Can we agree on that? Is that what our hope is in? If it's not, can I remind you that that is the truth? So let's believe it, let's practice in it, let's hope in it. Father, thank you for your word and the the promises of, of Jesus. We thank you for the instruction that he gives us that that there will be times of mourning and fasting, but it's, it's not without hope. Our hope has been made, made sure of because of what Jesus has done for us, Father. So we lean into that. We do not mourn as those who mourn without hope because Jesus is our hope. Father, would you help us believe that in our times of sorrow, in our times of loss, in our times of wondering, fear and doubt and asking, Father, would you help us look to Jesus? We have no other answers other than that. We thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.